From the FJC in Washington, D.C., I'm Mark Sherman, and this is Off Paper. Today we explore how officers conducting community supervision with higher-risk individuals can serve as agents of change. Our guest, Dr. Guy Bergone, is a clinical psychologist specializing in correctional and criminal justice psychology. For over 25 years, he has been dedicated to the development and implementation of empirically validated correctional services. He is widely published, and his extensive international experience in the training and supervision of frontline professionals helps facilitate the transfer of this knowledge to everyday practice. As co-lead for Canada's Strategic Training Initiative in Community Supervision, otherwise known as STICS, Guy is recognized for translating research into useful and practical concepts, skills and techniques intended to promote client engagement and facilitate pro-social change. So stay tuned, folks. It's going to be a good one. Guy Bergone, welcome to the program. Hi, Mark. So I want to begin by asking you about a concept that you've been writing about and training officers on for a number of years now, which is about the transformation of the officer from case manager to change agent. So first, what does that mean? And second, how can the change agent approach potentially improve client engagement? Well, when you think about community supervision over the last couple of decades, we're starting to see a significant change over the course of at least the last five years or so. Case managers is often what people talk about when they talk about probation itself. And You ask a probation officer, what, what are they, what do they do, and they, they say they're case managers. And what exactly does that mean? When you look at the sort of business of what they actually do, to a large extent, they're sort of collectors and storers of information, and they share this information. And that's become sort of their primary focus and job tasks over the last little while. And you kind of kind of look back and sort of see where that took sort of took place. And of course the history of it is is you know back in the 60s probation officers were essentially friends of their clients and they were trying to be good friends to help them grow. Um, but then after Martinson's nothing works, which I'm sure everybody's very very familiar with, the whole notion that changing criminals where it's like, oh my God, it's not going to work. So what did they end up doing? And of course, what they ended up doing was is it was all about the, the order itself. What do you do? What are you supposed to be doing? What are you not supposed to be doing in terms of the clients? And the probation officers were essentially collecting information about whether or not they did what they were supposed to be doing or not doing. And they would share this information with the courts so it became very administrative in nature. And, of course, eh, towards the late 80s, um, the whole notion of risk, need, and responsivity came out, and that was to basically counteract the nothing works debate. And with that, probation, corrections in general, recognized that people should be assessed for their needs, and those that's the risk principle was that higher-risk people needs more services, and of course the need principle, which was referring to the fact that some needs are more important than others when it comes to offending. But their their essence of what they were doing didn't change all that much in terms of that collecting and storing of information. There was now a lens in terms of identifying people who were more at risk or not at risk or less risky 
and the focus was still on administrative, identifying who was more at risk, who was less at risk, and figuring out what needs had to be addressed. And the case manager was sort of the point person. This this person would just essentially collect this information and sort of funnel or direct people to the right places. And the case manager was essentially not doing much of the change per se. They weren't the active participant. Rather, they were directing them to the right resources. Let's say you had a substance abuse problem. They would direct them to a substance abuse program. So most of those services were outside of probation itself. So you're saying that um, we're sort of witnessing uh, in the transformation of officer from case manager to change agent, the originally the officer was sort of the broker of information, the broker of services, uh, and that gradually we're moving into a space where the officer is uh, more directly engaged with the client. And so let's talk about that a little bit and sort of, you know, at what point, you know, did that did that change occur? Is it some? Is it still a work in progress? Well, I think it's still very much a work in progress. I think what systems and organizations are recognizing is is that probation officers are, are sort of the key. They're the ones who actually see the people most often over the course of a lengthy period of time. And here you have this great opportunity for them to actually get active and be down and dirty in terms of providing services to clients and starting to facilitate change. So in terms of the change agent approach, is, is, is rather than just being what I would call a travel agent where you're going to go, what do you want, what did this person need, and, and sort of brokering those services and helping them get to those services and almost washing their hands. Well, now this guy's in a treatment program. that Those treatment providers are the experts at change. Now we, we go, well, the probation officer itself, we can tap into and leverage their expertise with offenders to go, well, they know them really well. Let's provide them with the sort of skills and abilities to start facilitating change. So one of the things that's become quite clear both through the research and now through the training that uh, U.S. probation and pretrial services officers are receiving is the centrality of understanding uh, cognitive behavioral therapy uh, and principles related to it as sort of the core of the practices that, at least in supervision, officers uh, need to engage in with clients. Can you talk a little bit about that and sort of how that's played out? Sure. The cognitive behavioral approach, this is essentially the primary thing behind that, or the, the essence of it is, is that our thinking is what really drives behavior. And this, I think, is one of the, the biggest challenges for people to get to understand completely what that means. Too often when we, we ask people why they do what they do, their answers tend to be an explanation based on things outside of them. Uh, I often do in, in training that I ask people to stand up and I ask them a simple reason why they stood up. And the answers are typically ones of, well, you asked, I was being polite, and so on and so forth. They, they, they typically respond, and is the outside world cause me or is the causal agent to why I did what I do? 
with the cognitive behavioral approach, it, it sort of goes, well, yeah, those factors are relevant, context, but they're not the causal agent. When we start thinking about what's the causal agent from a cognitive behavioral perspective, it's the person themselves and the essence of, you know, taking responsibility and being responsible for our actions. The cognitive behavioral approach essentially goes the cause of our actions are internal. They're ourselves. They're what, our, what we think, what we feel, what's going on inside of our heads. And this is sort of an essence of when you think of offenders and all the reasons why they do what they do, we get all kinds of excuses uh, from because somebody else did this, somebody else did this. And the cognitive behavioral approach goes, well, that's context, but the real reason is, is what you think and taking responsibility for all that you think and you feel and you do. So um, this is uh, interesting because, um, you know, there is certainly some thinking among the uh, correctional community that taking that kind of an approach um, is perhaps letting the offender off the hook. But what you're saying is that taking the cognitive behavioral approach is actually um, really making sure that the responsibility is on the client, right? That they are taking responsibility for their thoughts and the actions that they take based on their thoughts uh, and that it's not caused by some, they can't blame it on some outside force that, that caused that the devil made me do it kind of thing. Exactly. And and this, to me, is, is the struggles, because all of us have preconceived notions of why we do what we do, whether it's ourselves or somebody else. Um, and, and to truly understand it is if you take complete responsibility, and some people go, well, that's being too responsible. I, I, I can't be responsible for, let's say, my parents and their, the dysfunction that occurred in my family of origin. No, you're not responsible for the defunction in your family origin. Yes, that provided context for what you grew up with, but people learn things. And, you know, in essence, whatever it is you learn during the course of your life, where does it get stored? It gets stored inside of your brain. And ultimately, when push comes to shove, is who decides whether you do something or don't do something? Who decides what you think? It's entirely up to you. And, you know, it's it's, it's almost like, I want you to be responsible for your intelligent choices as well as your not so intelligent choices, but that's your choice. So, and it doesn't mean that we're not empathic or, or you know, take into consideration that they may have had a hard life or whatnot. That's not the point. The point is, is today, what are you going to do about it? Right. So it really comes down to this uh, concept of agency. Right. Uh, yeah. And that the and personal responsibility. And so uh, I, I think that's uh, valuable uh, when we think about sort of what the role of the officer is in this context and really what the responsibility and role of the client is. And so um, let me ask you, uh, what does what does that look like if I'm an officer and I'm engaging in a cognitive behavioral approach in terms of my supervision practice with my client? You know, what does that look like in contrast to sort of the old dog chow or the old way of doing things? Well, 
in, in a quick nutshell, the old way of doing things was essentially we would dispense advice. We would give solutions to their problems and say, go do this. And we could be nice about it and be encouraging or whatnot, or we can lay down consequences should they not do these particular strategies. In the, in the cognitive behavioral approach, what we realize is that just like the offender needs to take responsibility for his choices and his thinking and his behavior, so too does the officer. So the officer takes a different approach in terms of creating an environment in which the client himself starts to recognize that what caused his behavior in the first place. I, I'd like to go there sort of four general steps to a good cognitive behavioral program or intervention. The first step is, is for a client as well as the officer to convince a client and do, for him to discover that the reason why you do what you do is because of what you think and nothing else. And if they can accept that one particular step, this stops a lot of their old way of thinking of blaming so-and-so, my friend, or this, or that, or this, and recognizing that, geez, I have a responsibility here in what I think and what I do. Once they've gotten that first step of recognizing that the cause of their behavior is their thinking, the next step for the officer is, is to create an environment for the client to start examining what it is he thinks and what kind of behaviors it leads to and the consequences it leads to. One of my favorite sayings is, is, does doing what you do get you what you want? And not just in the short term, but over the long term. And I often go, well, if you buy a car, and let's say it's the same car, I can sell it to you for a dollar or I can sell it to you for a thousand dollars. What price do you want to pay? And it's kind of a no-brainer question. People go, well, it's the same car, right? There's no catch. No, I'll, I'll pay a dollar. So we get the clients to start examining their thinking and to see how much it's costing them and what it is they want. They can start identifying those thoughts that are helping them get closer to doing more crime and all the consequences associated with that, especially the negative ones. And we go, well, if you change what you're thinking, does that actually increase the chances that your behavior changes? And that would be the third step where they start practicing changing their thinking and practicing new behaviors that lead to a the less costly car. And, of course, the last step, because it's cognitive behavioral, is, is there's a lot of practice associated with this, which means you try, you try, you try, you get lots of feedback, and you become better and better at it and more efficient at it and more effective at thinking differently and behaving differently. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Dr. Guy Bergone, a clinical psychologist with Public Safety Canada who specializes in translating research into useful and practical concepts, skills, and techniques intended to promote client engagement and facilitate pro-social change. We'll be back to talk some more with Guy after a short break. This is Off Paper. Successfully transitioning clients back into the community means staying on top of the latest research on substance use, mental health disorders, treatment services, and the development of job-related skills. To help officers do that, FJC Probation and Pretrial Services Education has developed treatment services, negotiating pathways and supporting successful transitions. 
This online course includes resources addressing topics like the science of behavioral health, treatment modalities, and medication-assisted treatment, among others. After taking the course, an officer should be able to better understand treatment modalities, match individuals to appropriate treatment services, and act as an agent of change in the supervision of treatment cases. The course can be found at fjc.dcn under Probation and Pretrial Services. We're back with Dr. Guy Bergone of Public Safety Canada. So, Guy, I want to take a step back for a moment and do a little, or maybe a big reality check here. We're talking about officers supervising higher-risk individuals. That usually means the person they're supervising is a man or a woman who will typically have multiple criminogenic needs and has a long rap sheet. They've been in and out of the criminal justice system for a number of years. Their lives are unstable. Maybe they've held a job and maybe they haven't. They might have children they're responsible for. It's likely that their previous interactions with the criminal justice system haven't been positive. They're not thrilled about being on supervision, but they have no choice in the matter. So when it comes to the relationship between the officer and the person on supervision, there's immediately an issue of distrust, if not outright hostility and resentment on the part of the client. So how does the officer who wants to be a change agent deal effectively with this distrust? That's a great question, Mark. Um, Certainly in terms of all the research for many decades now, we know that the a relationship between the person trying to facilitate change and the client is a really vital ingredient. And for community supervision, we sort of start off in a hole because they walk in the door with these expectations. Our clients have expectations of what the officer is going to be like, what are they going to do, what's their goals, what's their purpose. And it's very, very distrusting. So part of what we encourage, especially in, in a change agent perspective, is, is, is to try and start it off on, on the right foot, which means actually tackling their thoughts and attitudes about the criminal justice system, and in particular, the, the probation officer themselves. Um, part of that means sort of having the client take a seat and the officer taking charge of this session in which he's going to try and tackle those negative expectations of the officer right off the hop. So they, what they do is, is they go, look, is my profession, these are the things that I need to do in general. These are my responsibilities, my responsibilities to the court, my responsibilities to my organization, and my responsibilities to you, the client and actually have them understand these are what my roles are. But part of building a, a relationship that's going to be effective to help facilitate change is, is you want to let the client know how are you going to be with them. Here's a sort of when you've got the roles and responsibilities, you've got a big nutshell of this is what I do and why I do it. And then the next question is, is how am I going to be when I'm going to be with you? So we use something called role clarification where you start to talk about not you and that you like long walks in the park and whatnot, but what your professional personality is like because your client's going to get to know your professional personality over time. So no, why not you lay down your cards right off the hop about this is what my professional personality is like, who I'm going to be and how I'm going to act with you. Those particular sort of activities start off right away of 
tackling those negative expectations and building more realistic ones. And then, of course, it's the officer's job to follow through on those. Because typically when the client comes in, we just go, this is what you're going to do. This is what you're not going to do. You're going to report here. And it's all about the client behavior and the client focus. We throw it on, sort of flip it on its head, and it's all about the officer themselves. And this is the way I'm going to be. And that sort of starts the process of getting them to understand where you're coming from and changing those negative expectations. And, of course, the, the end of that role clarification is, is once the client can understand where the officer is coming from and how the officer is going to be, you then ask the client, how are you going to be and what can I expect of you? And this sort of changes the dynamic from sort of a, the power broker of the probation officer just telling the client what to do, making it more collaborative in nature and addressing those negative expectations. So, and I assume uh, that the research sort of bears out that that uh, approach, the beginning with role clarification, is uh, generally a, a successful way of beginning a relationship with a involuntary client, somebody who's coming in where there is this sort of uh, this uh, level of distrust coming into the relationship. So, uh, I, I can just sort of. Uh, it visualize folks listening to our conversation here thinking, you know, how on earth is that going to work <laughs> with yeah. these guys, these men and women who are coming to see me? They don't want, they already hate me, right? So, yeah. um, you know, how on earth is that going to work? And in the late 90s, well, early 90s, uh, Chris Trotter sort of introduced the whole notion of role clarification with involuntary clients and and now it's been about two decades, this is certainly a way that actually helps change the dynamic right away. Because when the client walks in the door, the dynamic's set up, especially with the higher-risk clients, it's set up for basically fighting. Um, by doing it this way, oftentimes what clients will do is look at you like you're from Mars when you do this because this is something completely out of the ordinary of what they're used to. Um, when you think about when they get arrested, they're drilled with questions, they're interrogated, interrogated, and told what to do, and told how to say it, and everything like that. And then all of a sudden, it's not even about them, it's about the other person on the other side of the desk. And this sort of stops them in their tracks to go, oh, something's different here. And it starts that process to allow engagement. Because I'll go on a sidetrack here. If, if you think about responsivity, and, and responsivity itself is, is, what does that mean? Essentially, there, the original writing, there was two aspects to it. The general responsibility about using cognitive behavioral approaches, because the research shows that this hands-on, concrete kind of learning is going to be more effective at facilitating change with uh, clients. The other part was more specific to trying to address the specific ways in which they learn, whether it's cultural, uh, gender-based, whatever it is. And part of the research, I, I, I take our researchers, I'm one of them, we've done a poor job at sort of illustrating what that actually means. And even if you're successful at it, what's, what's the impact of being successful at responsivity? And to me, I guess the first thing that you would see if you were successfully being responsive to your client 
would be engagement. They're going to actually talk and listen to you. This is the first thing you would notice if you're being successful at them. Um, if I'm using highly technical psychological terms, this is not responsive to them. They're not academically focused. They, they don't like big words. They like concrete, easy to visualize kind of words that make sense to them. And when you do that, then it gives them the power to be able to use your vocabulary to describe their own experiences. So you get engagement. After engagement, if they're engaged, then the question becomes, well, if you're teaching them anything, they would start to learn something, whatever it might be. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean you're following, let's say, the need principle. I could be talking about their mental health or I could be talking about how to vacuum a room or something like that, and they would learn how to do that better. So they're going to start to learn something. If you're actually targeting those criminogenic needs, then their learning is going to actually impact on those particular needs. And if the need is correct and it's a criminogenic need, then you would likely see reduced reoffending. So uh, one of the things uh, that you said that I think is quite intriguing is that by um, engaging uh, in role clarification, with the officer sort of taking that approach at the beginning of the relationship, uh, it's almost like um, a form of uh, psychological jujitsu because when you're working with the client, because the client is coming in expecting a confrontation. Is, is that yeah. fair? That's fair. Um, and, and they're not going to get a confrontation. They're going to mm -hmm. get a, uh, hey, how are you doing? Uh, yeah. And let, let's just sort of start off by talking about what my role of, as the officer is. Um, and that will sort of undermine that um, and kind of perhaps uh, throw the client off balance a bit because it's not a fight. It's not a confrontation. It's not mm -hmm. me telling you I'm the authority figure and you're going to listen to me, right? This is actually about you. Uh, but in order for it to be about you, I simply need to tell you what my role is going to be and, and how sort of this process is going to work. Is that fair? That's fair. And and it's it's interesting is one of the things that I've noticed over the course of many years of working with people in the criminal justice system is we're too quickly to go into what are we going to do together, whether it's a treatment provider or a probation officer. It's all it gets very task focused, and sort of the key to good role clarification is is to just talk about how we're going to be who we are and how we're going to be together, which really throws them for a loop because they're so used to directions or, you know, compliance and orders and, and that kind of thing. So it starts off with just, this is who I am. And part of the process is recognizing the power imbalance by going, me as the probation officer, I'm going to throw my cards down on the table first, as opposed to having you discover what they are. Here's who I am and here's how I'm going to be. We haven't even talked about during this process, what are we going to do together? Like, what's our purposes behind it? Um, I often use the, the phrase that, you know, the judge sentenced you and, and also sentenced me for us to be together. So let's just talk about how we're going to be together before we even figure out what are we going to do together. Right. So uh, while the client might be involuntary, so is the officer. Essentially, yes. Yeah. <laughs>
So uh, that's very helpful. I want to um, move on to this uh, and dig deeper with the with the uh, responsivity principle. You you sure. you mentioned it. Uh, I think it's central to this part of the discussion, certainly. Uh, and uh, and it it's it's a principle that is. Uh, quite different. I mean, we know this on the surface, but certainly as we dig deeper, we really see as a principle that it's quite different from the risk principle and the need principle, though certainly related as all three of those principles are. So is it fair to say uh, that with the uh, responsivity principle, you have written that uh, it's really, um, the officer needs to create what, what you have referred to as the optimal learning environment. And so is it fair then to say that the burden is on the officer to create that environment uh, by being attuned to the client's attributes. Um, that's one thing. And then uh, is it also true that the client's optimal learning environment is not necessarily the same as the next client's optimal learning environment? Absolutely. One of the things that sort of has happened with the responsivity principle, which is really unfortunate, is, is we've sort of created these checklists of these are the attributes of the client. With a the risk principle, it was very much sort of a client-focused. Um, these are the, you know, the risk level of the client. Same thing with the needs. It's very much client attributes. With the responsivity principle, if we just leave it at the client attributes, it's, it's almost like, what do you do with it? So what? You've got, uh, you know, an inner-city female who's living in poverty. Okay, yeah. So, okay, that's, that's, that's uh, with a grade six education. That's the attributes. For me, the, 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 the most important thing with the responsivity principle is, is this is something that actively, as me as the, the probation officer, has to do something. And it's what I do that actually dictates whether I'm being responsive or not. So it's not strictly about the client attributes. It's about what do I do? And, and when I start thinking about what do I do, it's just like, how do I help my client learn something? whatever that happens to be. And it's a question of how do I set up an environment that's conducive for them to learn? Some clients, are they like it direct. Um, they learn quicker when it's concrete and real. Others, it might be a little bit more abstract or feeling associated. Um, some might be learn quicker when they can understand things in terms of relationships versus strictly themselves. And when I think of a lot of the psychological terms that many treatment programs use, they're really technical terms. And it's, it's not the term, it's not the concept of the term itself that's a problem. Like you, you look at thinking errors. Many people are familiar with the term thinking error. The idea behind the thinking error is, is there are certain cognitions or thoughts that people have that create problems in their lives. And we use the term thinking error. Well, if I'm going to create an environment that's going to be conducive to my client learning and I'm going to tell them you have a thinking error, the first thing they think is now you're telling me I think wrong. <laughs> is this helpful for them to learn the concept, let alone try to start applying it to themselves? If we change the term, keeping the concept similar to something that's easier for them to understand, using a visual image, one of the things that I often encourage people to do is to use something like colors to describe attitudes as opposed to using the word positive and negative there's just four general colors and it's amazing how quickly that they can learn 
the language of colors and what it refers to, and then start applying it to themselves. This is a great example of responsivity because I'm using a concrete visual cue to help them understand a complicated psychological concept. So it's in the responsivity principle that we are really getting at the engagement with the client, uh, the teaching of the skills, the development of the relationship, and ultimately, uh, hopefully, the change in behavior. Is that fair to say? That is fair to say. And and that's, you know, I, I like what you said there because what it tells me and what I sort of always encourage is is that before you can change your behavior, you need to change your thinking. Many of us have tried to either quit smoking, get healthier and do more exercise, lose weight. We all know what to do to get these things to actually have happened. And what's the barrier to all that? It's what we think. We think, ah, oh, yeah, I'll start my diet tomorrow. Oh, this cheesecake is talking to me. Whatever it happens to be, and it's, it's our thinking. And if we can change the thinking that really makes it much more likely that our behavior is going to change. But if we don't change the thinking, that behavior is just sitting in the weeds, waiting to come out again at any moment in time. My guest is Dr. Guy Bergone, a clinical psychologist with Public Safety Canada. After a short break, we'll talk with Guy about the impact of the change agent approach on the officer's relationship with his or her supervisor and vice versa, and what the supervisor's role is in this context. Also, what are some ways the Probation and Pretrial Services Office, as an organization, can support officers as change agents? And finally, how does being a change agent affect an officer's relationship with the court and other stakeholders like prosecutors, defenders, and treatment providers? I'm Mark Sherman, and this is Off Paper. FJC Probation and Pretrial Services Education wants to provide officers as many services as it can and make them as easily available as possible. So we've developed a special topics page on fjc.dcn. There you will find a menu of options allowing you to search for center programs and resources arranged by role for U.S. probation and pretrial officers. You can also browse streaming videos on criminal justice and leadership. There are also links to forums where you can find and share information about problem-solving courts like drug courts, reentry courts, and the like as well as best practices for various aspects of probation and pretrial services. Take a look. You might find it useful and interesting. Search fjc.dcn. Dr. Guy Bergone of Public Safety Canada is our guest. Um, I want to talk about some of the larger organizational issues that are relevant, Guy. But before I do that, I wanted to just go back very briefly to our discussion about responsivity um, because you have written about um, this issue of, you know, obviously we, we officers want to target criminogenic needs, but that there also might be um, – we want to be strategic here if we're talking about um, – changing thoughts and changing behavior in the clients. We want to be strategic about that, and we're about uh, developing a relationship and engagement um, 
So what about the use of services that target non-criminogenic needs as a way of enhancing engagement? And here I'm referring to the study by Dr. Nana Messina of UCLA and co-authors that examined women assigned to a gender-responsive treatment group compared to women assigned to a traditional therapeutic community. And the outcomes were better for the women in the gender-responsive treatment group um, where those combined needs were addressed. And what does that tell us about uh, Tell us both for direct supervision of clients, but also uh, treatment services provided by treatment contractors. Uh, for me, it's it's again, it's under the umbrella of responsivity. Um, when we're trying to help a client and, and help them change, it's the entire person. It's very holistic in nature. Our, our criminogenic needs are not in isolation from all the other problems that they have. And one of the things that I see, especially in risk assessment, is we're trying to break them down and trying to identify very specific things. It's almost like little mail slots. And with those mail slots, some of them are non-criminogenic. They're not that much related to offending, and then some are criminogenic. But when we're working with someone, all of them are all part of the person's lives. And what I often try to do is help them conceptualize a person as a whole. And a great way for me to sort of describe that to people is, is, again, it goes back to what drives behavior. Well, it's your thinking. The thinking, if you think of a dartboard, the bullseye is their thinking. Whatever you think is going to permeate across the rest of your existence, your behaviors, your interpersonal relationships, and so on and so forth. And that will impact both your criminogenic and non-criminogenic needs. The second circle outside of the bullseye, is essentially all your interpersonal sphere, the people you choose to hang out with, your family members, how much time you spend with them, how much influence they're going to have, how much influence you're going to have with them, who your friends are. So this will, your thinking influences your social sphere. And then sort of the the wider one, the, the third circle, is what I call lifestyle sort of patterns whether it's a substance abuse lifestyle, an aggressive lifestyle, or a chaotic lifestyle. These are the things, but again, that bullseye, the center part, what you think and, and your attitudes will permeate across all across the board. And, and one of the things I see that probation officers do, and this almost goes back to the organization because we're so focused on just work on the criminogenic need and don't work on the whole person as a whole, Officers will try to get the client to work on a specific criminogenic need and almost force that on them. Um, I'm, I find that if you can just get a collaborative goal, one that's pro-social in nature, it doesn't matter how or whatever you describe it, every criminogenic need a client has, for, I'll use an example because it's the best way to describe it. Let's say I have a client who wants to improve his relationship with his wife and improve his relationship with his kids. He wants to be a better husband and a better father. Even though he might have a multitude of criminogenic needs, do I need him early on in the process to recognize that his drinking and his drug use is really destroying that? I don't need to do that. If I can get him to go, hey, I'm willing to help you improve that, I know for a fact that these criminogenic needs are going to permeate that, as well as maybe some non-criminogenic needs. 
that's fine. I don't have to get you to go, yes, sir, you're right. That's a problem for me at this point in time. Part of the process is for them to start to discover that this is problematic for their bigger overall goal. This way I've got a collaborative approach working on the person as a whole, knowing inside of my head that these things are going to come up and keep that as sort of a, I don't know, the other utensils on the table that the person's going to have to address. Wow, we uh, we human beings are complex entities, aren't we? We are. <laughs> I want to uh, switch gears a little bit uh, sure. and talk about some of the larger organizational issues that are relevant here. Uh, as you know, officers don't operate in a bubble, and at least in federal probation and pretrial, uh, the transformation of officers from case manager to change agent systemically is still quite new and a work in progress. Uh, so first, talk about what this means for the relationship. It's really a key relationship between the officer and his or her supervisor, how their roles might need to change and what that looks like. Well, part of this is, like you said, is is an organizational context. Um, For better or worse, our organizations have really got to a point now where they're entirely focused on administrative aspects of the job, this collecting and storing of information. Um, and, And supervisors are often tasked with assuring the quality of service and when it comes down to it, those quality of services that the supervisor gets concerned about and, and is tasked with is making sure that, say, risk assessments are done on time, their case notes are done on time, um, all the sort of administrative aspects are done on time. And in the old school, even in the case manager perspective, this was congruent with that sort of approach. In a change agent approach, The focus now becomes on is what is the officer doing to facilitate change? How are they building a relationship so that engagement happens? What's the sort of collaborative goals as the two are working on? And what are the tasks involved? And how is the client learning and starting to apply his learning to himself? These are foreign discussions between a supervisor and an officer because that's not part of their quality assurance mechanism. So what I've noticed over the last so five, six years is, is that off, uh, supervisors want to help sort of, you know, encourage and support this notion of change agent approach. And they recognize that their old way of interacting with their officers was not conducive to it because, again, it got down into the weeds of administrative details. So they needed to have a better way to have discussions with their officers that focus on basically the risk, need, responsivity factor, and in particular, what what are the the officers teaching their clients and what are their clients learning? And that's not really captured so much. We're worried about whether they're, they're doing or not doing their conditions. Did a risk assessment get done? Did they go to, you know, some service outside of them? Now the question becomes is, can we have discussions about what's the client's process and progress in their change process. So um, I, I, I get very much that sort of transformation within the supervisor from the focus on uh, administrative tasks and quality assurance and sort of checking the boxes in terms of the work the officer is doing to um, 
to uh, working with the officer uh, in terms of, you know, is the officer engaging with the client in a way to facilitate that pro-social change? Um, I suspect that's a fairly uh, big lift for most supervisors because that really hasn't been uh, their role, uh, at least for many, many years, I can certainly say in the federal, uh, in the U.S. probation mm-hmm. and pretrial system. And, you know, what are the kinds of things uh, that supervisors um, need to focus on and think about as they make that transition? I mean, they're still, they're still going to have to do the, the, the task stuff. Um, that's, uh, you know, a core part of their job. But what kinds of things do they need to think about in terms of making their own uh, at least mental transformation from just focusing on the task-oriented uh, administrative stuff and the quality assurance to um, perhaps working in a more developmental way with the officer? And this becomes uh, one of the things that I think is really critical for not just the supervisors, but like also the officers, the deputies, and the chiefs themselves, is recognizing that the organization's sort of vision and mandate um, is changing. And that's one in which we're trying to facilitate change in our clients and not simply be watchers. We're not just human bracelets, uh, electronic monitorings of our clients anymore. So for the supervisors, um, one of the things that I think that they've really appreciated is having a not necessarily expertise at how to facilitate change, but knowing about the process itself and being curious to help their officers be able to take the moment in time to actually go, what am I doing and where am I going? And how am I getting there with my client? And giving them time and space to recognize or at least evaluate their client's response to various efforts they make to facilitate those that change. So they need a really good understanding of risk, need, and responsivity, especially that newer perspective, and to start showing value to those change efforts as opposed to simply getting your paperwork done on time. So that's got to be, I mean, culturally, that is a huge shift. Um, Certainly, uh, it's fair to say that U.S. probation and pretrial just systemically has been, you know, a fairly... uh, I, I, I don't want to use uh, the term I'm thinking of is progressive, not politically, obviously, but in terms of the way that it's been thinking about working with clients over the years. Um, but but even so, uh, for a for a um, an agency that has a very strong and important law enforcement role, uh, th- that has got to be a major cultural um change for that type of an organization, which sort of on, is trying to balance this law enforcement um, approach with the more sort of change agent, facilitating pro-social change type of uh, approach that we're talking about today. And I, I suspect that organizations, probation and pretrial departments, uh, let alone the individual supervisors who are supervising a unit uh, and the senior management, I, I suspect the really struggling with this stuff there's 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 the constant struggle in, in especially in corrections um, the notion that we law enforcement and again it, it boils down to to me it starts with what's your vision what's the purpose of what it is you're doing 
Or, or we simply a, a nanny, and I, I can't think of a better word, the, the mummy of some kid watching over, ready to dis, dispense consequences for behaviors or, or not behaviors. Yes, that's part and parcel of what we do, but simply what we know from the research is, is that simple approach is not going to make a difference in the long run in terms of whether the person's going to reoffend or not reoffend. And in fact, there's some pretty decent research suggesting that that's actually counterintuitive and counterproductive to our notion of making our society safer. That actually increases the pr- probability of someone reoffending. And as we start to sort of grapple with that, it's it's an education process. It's not just an education with the officers and the supervisors and the organization, but it's also an education with the entire sort of criminal justice system. What I'm seeing now is, is that that whole notion of being accountable for our business. And people are asking more and more, is, is what we're doing actually doing what we want it to do? And that is, is making crime less likely to happen. And you're seeing this more and more going, well, if it's not, then we should start reexamining what we're doing. And there's been literally, I mean, we're approaching four decades. Don Andrews and Jim Bonta wrote their first article on the risk-need-responsivity model in 1980. So we're we're approaching the 40-year mark, and since that time, we've gathered so much evidence that providing services within that concept of that model actually can reduce reoffending of our clients. And to do that, we need to be doing that in all aspects of what we're delivering in terms of the criminal justice system. Yes, the court's got to go, you're guilty, you're not guilty, and here's the sentence. But especially when they're being reintegrated back into the community is, is our behaviors and our tasks and our job is, is to not just catch them after they've done something wrong, but to make it less likely they're going to do that. I want to thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you, Mark. It was a great pleasure. Guy Bergon is a clinical psychologist with Public Safety Canada. His work on the transformation of the community supervision officer from case manager to change agent has had a significant influence on the use of evidence-based practice in U.S. probation and pretrial services. His publications are widely available, including in Federal Probation Journal, published by the AO, so check them out. Our producer is Paul Vamvas. The program is directed and edited by Craig Bowden. I'm Mark Sherman. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.